What if development meant improvement, getting better at what you are doing? Imagine objective criteria being mainstream and excellence rewarded. Imagine narratives self-evidently at the top of the hierarchy. My guest for the evening is a painter of myths, dreams and personal events, universalized on large-scale canvases. Before we begin, I'd like to thank our top sponsors, Erde Nördrum, Marcella Schirak and Anders Berge Christiansen for making this show possible. Sebastian Salvo, welcome back to the Cave of Palace. Thank you for inviting me again to the Cave of Palace. Very well. As I understand, you almost broke your back since last we talked. Oh yeah, yeah. Uh, painting the, the last uh, composition that I was at that time planning to, to do, the outcast. Right, yeah, okay. Yeah. What happened? Oh yeah, but uh, this uh, thing about uh, painting this big, uh, more big scale painting, going back, back and forward to take distance to see how the whole thing worked. Right. And it was a little bit tall, the painting, and I'm not that tall, so I had to get over some bench and painting the sky there suddenly. Wow, almost I broke my neck coming, uh, taking some distance to see if the sky there was working right. good. Mm. And on the wall here we have a compositional sketch, to be sure, <laughs> for yeah. a new grand uh, theme. Yes. And uh, the star sign for the evening, of course, is storytelling mm -hmm. and uh, one of the things I wanted you to talk about is all the different factors that a painter has to consider uh, when painting narratives and this is also why we'll be centering quite a lot around Giorgio Vasari and what he writes about uh, how what painters need to, to consider and um, it, it will also be quite uh, a lot of fun, I think, to talk about uh, the Renaissance conception of competition and what that really implies. Um, but before we start talking about how you develop your compositions with this as, as a vantage point, um, of course, I have to say something to our audience first. This is our first anniversary as the Cave of Apollos, and we have now launched on Patreon. So you can go to patreon.com slash caveofapellus and check out the different advantages you can get uh, in supporting our show. So, Sebastian, what on earth is going on here? Okay. <clears throat> well, basically it's, um, it's a story about uh, a man being uh, guided or... Uh, um, yeah, that's what you say when someone is pointing the direction. Yeah, yeah. yeah being guided into a certain path in which ends up in a not so uh, good situation. Uh, this uh, man that is guided by this young girl with this dog, they get into this dark forest and they meet this uh, strange group of people coming out from the forest, maybe thieves or something, but they don't look nice at all. Right. And <clears throat> this is the second version of this composition that I want to do. Um, so you made another separate sketch or are you yeah, elaborating the same sketch? No, no. There's another sketch in charcoal, which right. is slightly different than this one. It was not that clear, the whole thing about the story. 
and it's not that clear yet. Yeah. So probably I will have to do a third sketch to get also the composition and the story more clear because so what do you not know <clears throat> as of now yeah. in terms of the story of the of the painting like what, what is it what do you envision going on right now oh well and what is not successful what it is not enough is that it's not clear that the woman or the girl is uh, leading to an uh, to oh. a wrong path that he is convinced or in a way seduced into going right. into this direction which ends up in not in a good way right and that's something that i have to be aware of at the moment i make the third version of the sketch and then to the big composition but this is something that that happens in a way that <clears throat> you have to make several sketches or you have to come back to the story again and again mm. and uh, to have the plot or the subject of the story very clear mm. and this is something quite tricky and that's good also to be surrounded by other colleagues so having some critiques about the composition about the sketches because then you can start figuring out what uh, how to improve the story and how to improve then the compositions and how to put things together right and, and that's also why i want to to um first off start off with your "Quote unquote personal experiences in creating compositions before we get to Vasari and what you know to mm -hmm. see it all in, in the light of what he's writing. Mm -hmm. uh, so, if we should break it down into some subcategories, what do you need to be aware of as a figurative painter when you're making that story? I mean, what uh, I, th I think psychology is is definitely an important point. Like, what what, what would you say about that? Yeah, well, um, in this case, I wanted to make the the characters. Uh, look to each other so the the looks they meet in certain points they have eye contact and even the dog has some eye contact with the man that is behind the the the, the tree i mean the dog is yeah. aware of his presence and even the cow is looking at the dog in a very strange way like in certain moment it can become scared and yeah everything can start can trigger the whole action but uh, um in a way that the character should have a relationship between each other or they touch or they look on the same direction but some kind of interaction yeah i mean that helps to make more believable the whole scene and um, it builds up also a, a psychological uh, character to what uh, to define what's going on here yeah uh, so that to define that psychological mood that could uh, be present on the painting, it's about the look, the facial expression, the, uh, the body expression and how they are moving or how <clears throat> they are going from this emotion towards this other one. Right. So it's, it's a lot, it's everything about trying to imitate as best as possible, the um, psychological um, complexity of a of a person, right, and the variety of emotions that go from this to that, from sadness to happiness, and to envy and to resentment, and to be able to depict all of them. But that I think could start. And that's yeah. yeah I mean, that also presupposes, I guess, that you somehow. Um, you have to empathize to go in and go into the head 
of the character. How would this person, in yeah. relation to his, the age, the sex, the position, whatever, yes. uh, react in such a situation? Yeah, then you don't, you, you are not treating the, the painting or the characters as it or something that is painted. Yeah. Yeah. But you have to uh, uh, care about it as if it's a real person. Yeah. So you have to get into the the the, the, the character that you're trying to depict. Yeah. Um, and I think that's a kind of a, like the work of an actor. Then you have to be in front of the mirror in a way and try to emulate or uh, uh, act a little bit as the character should react in that situation or that. Mm. But you have to start caring a little bit about the character there. How does this man feel? Right. And then you have to be, uh, yeah. And I think, <clears throat> I always think about uh, narrative painting, a contrast would be your typical uh, academic painter. Mm -hmm. which is, I guess, generally seen as sort of a, the last caretakers of storytelling before you get naturalism in these things. But I think a problem uh, with a lot of what they're doing is that they're, they, it, it ends up with, you know, so-and-so reading letter, the letter from so-and-so and, and, and this and that date, and nothing is really happening. They're just, just standing there. And you have to know the story behind it to be able to sort of be gripped by What's going on? Yeah. yeah. Well, you can have a, a, a great story behind the painting, <laughs> but in a way, all that is source, works as sort of inspiration for the painting. But if there's no drama there, yeah. it doesn't work. Right, right. I mean, you have to, uh, you can have the whole structure very well defined, where the elements are going to be, how the story is about, that if the effects that you use on that painting are not properly done, it doesn't work. Hmm. So um, then you have this typical academic uh, painting, which you can have maybe a bi biblical story or a myth, a very classical myth, a classic myth. But if there's no uh, drama there, there's no empathy hmm. for the um, psychology of the characters there, it doesn't work. Yeah, it becomes a model and not the actual figure or person standing there. It becomes uh, someone who is painted there. Right. Flat and frozen there in that uh, place, but uh, it's not really going through the situation. Right, right. right. Yeah. So, so what about uh, strictly composition then? Mm -hmm. I mean, one of the things you mentioned uh, uh, before this conversation is um, you had like a discussion or a conversation with Boris Koller, who's also been on the show, Yes. when it comes to effect and structure. Yeah. Can you explain what that, that, that is all about? Well, um, in terms of, uh, of structure... Uh, Meaning composition. Yes, yeah. uh, that the, the painting or the work should stand by itself in a way that you have to take care uh, of the corners of the image. You have to uh, try to fix how the image could work on a flat surface and well composed in a way that you can have a sort of a geometrical form here and there that could keep the whole support the supporting the, the, the composition right. um, or lines that are very um, 
that could also support the composition. But mm. this is something that is very useful at the moment of making or making the sketch or composing. If you don't have that structure clear, it might just it might just end on a variety of effects here right. and there, but with no so order, it's, no I rhythm. Mean, if you're you're you know, skilled at uh, psychological expression, yeah. painterliness, but you don't have the composition, then you're kind of lost. Or... Well, you can do a, a very well, a very good portrait, maybe. Yeah. So portrait. Yeah. Um, but uh, then to go into composition and trying to handle a, a big size composition, where are there ele many elements into a scene, that can be uh, extremely uh, complicated if right. you're not aware of the structure of the composition. Right. And but, but how do you go about learning composition? Then? Learning? Like, yeah, like what do you study to learn composition? It's strange, but I think there, may, there might be a tendency from some people to start putting things in order. Like when you are very little. Mm. Um, I don't know, I remember that I was uh, building up in my uh, grandparents' house in the garden spending a lot of time alone there, uh, building up labyrinths made okay. of stones and mud. So in a way it was going, where should the character go from this area to that? Area? <laughs> so to make it, uh, to make a clever labyrinth. So she could get lost all over. So he has to come back to get to the center and blah, blah. Okay. Um, maybe there's a tendency to do it. Mm. And then you start looking at things around, trying to find patterns here and there. Mm. Um, but uh, how to learn it? Well, to see a lot of the great uh, masterpieces from the painters of the Renaissance, from what Odd Nerdrum is doing, mm. uh, how he puts things in order, how this cold uh, color that he puts here, and he repeats it there and there, and then on the background and back there here. So then you have to start finding a rhythm. The same with the lines or the figures, how they stand. All these strange variations and rhythm of uh, temperature, of vibrance, of uh, sh hard shapes, then it fades, the figure loses a little bit and fades away. He does that all the time. Mm. So if you look at that, you pay attention, you see El Greco, you see Tizian, you see Michelangelo, you will see that same... Um, awareness of how put things in certain order yeah yeah, yeah. i mean because you, you have this i don't know if you've heard that story that that um, at some point if just a lot of birds would land arbitrarily on some phone lines or some some electrical cords or whatever yeah they would create uh, music by mozart <laughs> okay so you're sort of to say that well this is just arbitrary what what the result is but i remember uh, one thing Adnerdum uh, told me was that he would, uh, I think at least in like the 70s, 80s, would sit at concerts and would bring Caravaggio or Titian especially and analyze their compositions yeah. and just draw the cross, the X, and then the line like this, and then from the bottom to the middle to the bottom again, and then to see what actually went on there. Yeah. And I think that that's an amazing thing when you look at Caravaggio, how he, things are so extremely well structured according to these, these geometrical mm -hmm. lines. But in addition to that, you have this sort of a rhythmic composition. 
how one movement goes from one figure is caught up by the other and then from something in, in the background and then back to another figure again and then it just goes yeah. in a very soft, very dancing manner. Right? Yeah, uh, that's quite difficult yeah. to see when you see an oil painting. Yeah, yeah. But if you translate that into these simple lines, yeah. uh, then it gets more clear and then you yeah. can start learning about it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. right. So what about... Um, uh, you sort of alluded to it, this the whole idea of, of uh, not being a naturalist. Mm -hmm. What do you want to say about that? Why, why is that a problem? Well, I think this uh, naturalistic uh, view about, about just copying what you see in front of you uh, it's slightly modern and uh, what you see or what I see on the great uh, Greek sculptures uh, the Greek or uh, the great um, painters from the Renaissance and what I see in Ott as the the best there's always a blending between nature mm -hmm. it's not enough mm. you take out from na nature and then they blend it into something that you improve something from nature or some uh, things that you find there. It's not, we, I go there in front of the landscape and I just paint the landscape that I find there. Mm. There's no poetry on it. But you see in some, for example, landscape painter, Hertevig, he goes and he picks this cloud and then he picks this tree and then he's mm. just blending them and making the whole thing works on this piece of canvas. Right. Well, if you just take it from the natural, well, I, see, I think I mentioned it in, uh, I think, the conversation with Per Lundgren, mm -hmm. how Lars Hartevig, when he painted the Borg Island, we go and see it. Yeah. There's like a whole, whole additional uh, mountain that he's just cut off. Yeah. Just took it away. <laughs> it's not there in the painting. No, because if it's all about that, it works here. Yeah. And that's what I think a naturalist is not aware yeah. of. I mean, it's the same thing if you mix colors on a white palette and you have it on a uh, colored canvas, you have to adjust the color to the way it looks on the canvas, not on the palette. Not on the palette, and you will never yeah. see what is yeah. really going on here if yeah. you have a white background. But it's all about that it works on, on that flat surface. Yeah. And that's something that a, a, a naturalist is not aware of. Mm. It just, he's just they going there, very naive, painting from the light, and then just making a translation. Oh, mm. the cloud has moved, what am I going to do? Yeah, yeah. How can I fix this? Right. Yeah. So then you have the impressionist. Right, so you're dealing with the essence of things, right? Yeah, yeah, kind of. Well, it, it reminds me also of this story about, is it the Canadian Aphrodite, where he, uh, the sculptor used like five different models to get the best from each to make the you know ultimate Aphrodite mm -hmm. figure. Mm -hmm. Well, uh, there's a story about Mantegna, Right. There, that uh, he was criticized uh, about that the figures he depicted, the figures that he painted, looked like sculptures. Right. They didn't look alive. They right. were too stiff, and yeah. So what he started doing, and he he got that critique as a hard one. He took yeah. it seriously. Yeah. And then he starts painting with live models from fantasy but he didn't left the sculptures behind, but he blended them. Right. So he blended the live model, fantasy, and the sculptures to find 
the exactly what he wanted. So it's right. that's another thing. It's good to combine. It's yeah, necessary. That, that's what you're doing too, right? I mean, I've seen you uh, looking at books and also you know being able to paint uh, um, at Odnodens Farm to, to copy yeah. the painterly elements qualities uh, from some nude into your own nude and All know, the basically time. having a model there. <laughs> yes, <laughs> you have a, a, a lot of books full of models yeah. there. Yeah. That is how I take it. And but how, how do you, what would you say then, um, is there a danger of, of just drifting into pure fantasy, you don't need the model anymore? No, I mean it's a danger but when, when, when you see that that's going on, that's happening, yeah. If you're a little bit aware, yeah. you will notice. Right, and right. then the, the, the image there is not working. The flesh is not vibrating enough. Uh, the expression of the face is not psychologically gripping. Mm. Mm. And then you know that you have to go back mm. to the model. Right. Yeah. But it's good to work from fantasy, but as soon as possible, bring the model back. Right. Like maybe one session with the model, one session you work by yourself and then bring her back. Right. Or him. Whatever. Right. Yeah. Because, yeah, yeah. And that's, um, so you, you, you use the material from model and then you let it dry and then you have to see how it fits the, the direction of the story, right? Oh yeah, and, the, and how it works on the canvas because yeah. then you can paint from the model and then you get it right, but in the, in the canvas that you have in front, you might have to fix things here and there in order that it works there. Yeah. But not just if it's exactly like the model or not. I don't, it's, I don't care about it. Right, right, right. But it should, uh, what I care is that works in the canvas. That's what is going to stay. For right. Yeah. right. Nobody's going to remember I mean, the model. But it's also, a, I mean, if you should write a mm. novel, yeah, I think it would be much easier to understand that. Well, you, you cannot describe everything that's going on because then there's no story. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, if you, yeah, if you describe everything around, what is going on, how the the color of the leaves and how the wind goes by and how that road was and all the flowers that are there, it's you miss the point. Right. So I think a composition should work like that in a way everything condensed as much as possible right that you don't get lost into these little details and but as much information as possible and condensed in a way right and then it works i think that's when the image can be uh shocking enough that you really get uh, yeah you really get the shock but you can you, you shouldn't get lost in these little details yeah, yeah. so <clears throat> Like, could you say something about what stories are worth telling? Like, how do you choose the stories? Uh, well, all the stories that I think make a stamp or a, a very heavy impression in your life, for example. Mm. Heartbreak or ever being um, thrown out from a city or leaving a country or uh, crossing a border or uh, being beaten or uh, fall in love. I mean, all these shocking moments, the moments that you remember, mm. uh, I think they 
I think you said that if you live or you go through a shocking moment, there's something archetypical in that uh, situation. Right. And then you, you will always find stories here and there that can bring you elements to that story that you have been going through. I mean, that's a kind of a story that you can start working with, the, the, the very strong experiences that you have had right. before. Right. And I was thinking about what I said in the, in the um, introduction, uh, that, I mean, this scene here is basically a scene from a dream. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You really get that sense of, of how things are, are condensed in a dream. And you, you've been talking about what happens in dreams, what you see in dreams and what you don't see in dreams. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, like uh, we were talking about that the other day and with uh, some friends and uh, that there are never clear eyes on a dream. You never see someone directly into the, his eyes or her eyes. It's just feeling that the eyes are there maybe. And uh, Odd told me a story about uh, that someone asked him about why all these characters are dressed in these strange clothes, why they don't have shoes, and uh, why they are living in this desert, lands desert landscape. And he, he answered like, uh, he asked a question to this man that was wondering why. And he said, well, in dreams, are there any smartphones? <laughs> no. Uh, and the people you meet there, how they dressed, what they are wearing, certain clothes or? Mm. No, they are just dressed in rags maybe. Right. Do they have shoes? No, 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 they don't. So there you are. Right. And this is something that I think Dreams leave, they leave, uh, take away all the unnecessary details mm. and what remains is what is important. So they work in a, in a way of as a mythical story or as good stories, some dreams that they did. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I think Campbell talks about uh, dreams as, uh, is it unconscious myths or something like that? I don't remember the exact phrasing, but it, something, yeah. something to that effect. Yeah, that the dreams are myths that come, they, they uh, come at uh, night, mm. something, but I don't I do not remember either <laughs> what he was talking about. But uh, I think they dreams as a source of uh, as a source of uh, making a subject or a, or, a, or a painting. Yes, but they have to be translated. Right, 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 right. You cannot just take it and just put it like that. You have to translate that strange manuscript and turn it into a, a, a story that can be... A conscious myth. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> if, you have to I'm, make it conscious. It correctly. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, right. yeah. So you have to translate that as a, as a scholar. Right. Mm. So what I wanted to do now is, um, as I mentioned, we are, um, we are now on uh, Patreon. So <clears throat> just, just let me make the audience aware of what you you can do, you can support us at, at uh, titanium, ochre, vermilion or Mars black level and you get uh, previews, you get extra material and of course you can ask questions and be sure to have your question uh, answered and your name mentioned. So, are you ready for some questions?
questions from the audience? Oh, yeah. Um, so this is from, from Patreon, and this person uh, would like to be anonymous, so of course we'll respect that. Okay. <laughs> uh, what is your opinion on incorporating narratives with biblical or re religious references in paintings? Does this contradict the timeless quality, considering the fact that only people with a certain belief can slash will be able to resonate with its me message? Or is this not a problem? I think it's not a problem if things that could say that this painting is about Christianity mm. are taken away. I mean, all many of the stories that are to told in the Bible, they are also stories that have been taken from older stories or ancient right. stories. Right. So, um, uh, or you will see similarities between biblical stories and some myths from the Greeks and um, some Celtic stories and uh, yeah. yeah so I don't think it's a problem at all but I, they should be brought I think into a, a, a context in which it makes it universal so right. maybe to take away some unnecessary well, this is I guess it's what uh, Titian does with Pietà yeah it's a mother Saint Sebastian also yeah, a mother uh, mm. looking at how holding his son that is dying there is mm. dead. Mm. So that's quite universal. Right, right. So it's not necessarily Christian. So right. I mean, I guess it's the same thing as you. You shouldn't have a naturalist approach to it. Just illustrate the story, but find the essence. Yeah, of... yeah, yeah. Not taking the whole thing literally, but right. trying to get what is the the core of it. Yeah, because uh, the essence. Obviously, there's there's a mythical content there. Yeah. So here's um, a question from our Instagram account. Um, in your opinion, what's the most common mistake you see today from classically trained painters? There's a lack of trauma, emotion, psychological um, depth mm. in the characters are depicted. Um, and the lack also of composition in terms of the big scale, trying to find a way, a shortcut, how to solve big problems. Mm. Uh, it's too obsessed, people are too obsessed with realistic things, that it look, should look realistic. Mm. And uh, they should, I think, should start looking at Masaccio, start looking at El Greco, start looking at classical and Greek sculptures and stop looking at photos. Mm. So I, I think uh, to go into that direction is just to get in contact with the best of all time and uh, to make it, to make the images human. If there are characters there, please make them touch each other, look each other, they have some contact human contact not just people standing there that's going mm. it's like going back to the middle ages yeah. there's just saints there standing with no interaction <laughs> there's nothing going on so what it should be i think more 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 greek right more uh, human connection right in that way yeah okay less art less art yeah uh, another one from Instagram. Um, for you, is there a connection between the process or technique of making a painting and the underlying story or narrative? And if so, does this process change and vary depending on the painting's narrative? 
I guess uh, he's asking if you've changed your technique according to what kind of motif you're painting, if I'm understanding this yeah. correctly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, uh, basically, well, all the, all the canvas are prepared in the same way, mm. which is the more stable one. Mm. Uh, but the amount of the amount of this color and that color or how thick are they going to be the layers of the main characters or the background or whatever it yeah should be put it according to the story mm. i mean first the story then the sketch where the elements are going to be here and there and then if it's going to be dark it's going to be cold or it's going to be daytime uh, mm. nighttime and then mm. you start building up from story to the uh, colors placing things here and there Secondary things, right. but uh, everything will be at the service of the story. Right. So then you will but have you, to. Do you change the, your specific painting technique according to to uh, um, subject matter? I don't think so, but I don't have a, a step one, step two, right. three, four to right. finish a painting. I know? guess the general idea is that you have an attitude to where you create, fo to where you uh, uh, get the focus. Yeah. And that's one basic way of doing it, no matter what well, story. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, you will not start with the yeah. tree on the background, but you yeah. will start, <laughs> yeah. uh, I guess, with the main characters that are involved into a certain action. Yeah. And then you will start doing the cloud yeah. back there. Right, right. I think that's a natural order to make it. Okay. And that's <clears throat> always the same. How do you choose the themes and stories that you paint? Um, I can merge this with another question, asking if your, your ideas come from allegories, myths, biblical stories. Okay. Uh, mm, well, it's a mix, really. Yeah. It's, uh, as, I, as I told you before, it's uh, strong experiences, events from life, from my own experience. Um, reading some good stories in the books and uh, picking up things from myths and blending them all together and mm. mostly as i said the most shocking events in your life there are always going to be a good story out there that reflects that uh, or right. uh, serves as a mirror of right. that situation that's why i think myths are for to see where in which stage of life you are now. Right. So, yeah, it's a blending of uh, dreams, uh, personal events, uh, stories that I take from uh, myths, or, yeah, I'm always searching here right. and there. I guess, I mean, you can make a story, make a painting about something that you really have not experienced at all, but you read some book that really strikes you because it strikes a nerve of human existence like mm. uh, yeah. yeah well i i think to go through certain experience can help to know how it feels like or how it could feel to be on the opposite side if that's right. the case but it's not mandatory that you have to throw yourself into these strange situations to be able to depict them. Right, right. Uh, to paint the outcast is not necessarily that I have to make everyone to expel me from the city. Well, it's the same thing as a person who is skilled, skilled at painting. Going through some tragedy doesn't necessarily enable him to paint. Oh, that, no. That I mean, you see what happens with uh, maybe a lot of people that have terrible stories hmm. uh, coming out from uh, other countries trying to find uh, refuge 
on other countries and they have been going through very hard events but there's mm. no story coming out from it mm. except from except from the news but you don't see any mm. paintings or right, right. right. so okay <clears throat> which are the main painterly qualities shared among the paintings you admire and consult the most okay um well sen- can you repeat the question <laughs> which are the main painterly qualities yeah shared among the paintings you admire and consult the most okay um sensuality in a way that the the, the body that you can see there and the expression looks alive mm. the, it's really warm or cold and you can also f- see the shape and the roundness of the body mm. Uh, mix that mixed with uh, a strong structure on the way rhythm is uh, worked there on the composition. Um, so that plus the way things are put it into places, and yeah, and finding uh, strange ways of solving rhythm. I mean, mm. not just the typical composition, but someone who dares to do something totally wild mm. and strange and trying to find a way to do it, a shortcut here to make it work. Right. Yeah. So that kind of uh, um, attitude. Yeah. I mean, someone who dares to, fix, to make a, a wild composition plus elements uh, here and there and sensuality yeah right yeah and i guess also when you're creating stories you really have to be much more painterly and not too dry and then you know being able to separate forms just by cool and warm colors instead of contrast is one hell of an efficient way of (laughs) creating volume oh yeah 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 yeah. um and you need it's better to, to, to use a more loose way of painting when it comes to big composition mm. or to make images in, in movement. Right. Because that is what is going to make the images to being just still there to going to this vibration that will give the illusion of that they are moving. That's what happened with right. Masaccio. Coming out from uh, a, a more hard, uh, stiff way of uh, paintings at that time, Masaccio with, uh, I don't remember the other names of the other paintings, but it was mm. like three others. Mm. They, Vasari, that's something that he's, he talks about. They, they, um, they end, they ended, they finished the bad reputation that uh, those painters had at that time. So they, they were able to make it more loose. Right. So the the the, um, the characters could look like they were moving, and there were transitions right. of emotions going from this to that. Uh, and that's quite interesting that they were very aware that stiffness and hard edges, hard, hard contours and edges, not good enough. Mm. And Masaccio was able to break that, and <laughs> that's that's where um, development. It's the same as improvement. Yeah. Okay, last uh, question before we really go into to the Vasari mm-hmm, mm-hmm. part here. Uh, this is from our face, Facebook page, Kevin Polis. Do you have 
particular painters that you study more for your narrative paintings or does it change based on what you're planning to paint? Yeah, um, well, I always, uh, I'm always going back again and again to old, uh, old Nerdrum's paintings. Um, there's always something that I'm missing from the story. So I can go back to those stories again and again and suddenly I get it. Uh, so I have his book always next to me um, while I'm working. El Greco, uh, fantastic way of uh, making, in, in his best works, making wild compositions and make condensed myth or story there. Mm. Um, well, Michelangelo, there's, uh, who else? I can think about uh, what's the name of the, this painter. I mean, this man who made the Gates of Paradise in Florence. Oh, um, you're talking about Ghirlandaio? Yeah, I think that's his name. Well, you can see on these uh, small details of the, the whole door hmm. how the, the forms are. Right. Shaped and uh, really condensed stories. Right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's yeah. everything is condensed yeah. just in a small, yeah. this little thing, and it's wonderful. Right. Um, so, well, but um, who else? Well, I think that's fine. Mm. I mean, you you mentioned Vasarian and this mm. this self awareness then of of a recent development. You know, coming out of this stiffness. Yeah. That this was uh, not some arbitrary thing, but they were really quite conscious about that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. and that's that's why also Vasari talks about that Masaccio uh, gave every every master that came after him the clue in a way how to where to yeah. go yeah. from painting. Right. Um, things like uh, that. The color, the the color of, of the skin of uh, the characters. I mean, the color of the draperies should match with the color of the nude parts of the bodies in the painting, right. so they don't become detached one from each other, but they are blended into the same palette in a way. Uh, the foots well grounded on the floor where they were standing yeah, not well, just this this uh, food that they're just like leaving earth in a way but they were quite grounded um, the look of the, the of the expression of the characters um, they were looking at each other and there is a painting where I think it's the pa payment of a tribute yeah yeah, yeah someone is giving the money to the one who is asking for the money yeah. and you can see that the the face of the man who is giving the money <laughs> is not very happy and the man who is receiving the money <laughs> looks like he is getting a lot. So this um, being very empathic, yeah. being able to represent those human emotions, Vasari was saying this is what uh, has not been here before. Right. That expression, this way to render the figures, um, and this uh, more soft painting, going away from that rough way of doing it, mm. 
was something that he said, this is more or less when everything yeah. starts. And that's an amazing thing. I mean, it must be like, like uh, being in America in the 1800s where suddenly this country starts becoming cultured. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It must be an amazing thing to be a part of. Yeah. And I, I'm thinking about what, um, uh, you know, I think it's important to mention that the things that we're, we're talking about when it comes to, to uh, Vasari, yeah. of course, it's not isolated, not some idiosyncratic idea that Vasari has, but you can find the same things in the Greek Roman way of thinking too. And when you read um, uh, Pliny, he talks about, uh, it gives a very short little paragraph about the development of Greek painting. Mm -hmm. I don't remember the exact phrasing, but it's something like, well, you get outline, yeah, and then you have uh, uh, Apollodorus who came with, with shadows. He was called Skiagraphon, the, the shadow painter. Uh -huh. And that was an, was an uh, improvement. Yeah. And of course, then you have the opening of the mouth so uh -huh. that the person could talk, <laughs> breathe. And uh, of course, the contrapposto mm -hmm. and, uh, uh, and other things as well. Also, the, also the coarse way of painting, like in late Titian. Yeah. I mean, that this is why they were so concerned with the palace, right? Because he was known as the one who, who was painting in a uh, sort of late Titian style, <laughs> as far as we know. <laughs> well, and that's, yeah. it's not, uh, yeah, and that's not surprising then that in the epitaph of uh, Masaccio, there's, uh, uh, in this poem, uh, there's something about Apelles also in his right. uh, the epitaph of his, his grave. Right. So they were very aware of uh, these things at that time. And um, so then to start thinking about a strange idea of progress yeah. uh, that the, the painting develops and what we see today, I mean, that's just totally nonsense. Well, it, it, they had a completely, I mean, in their idea, development meant improvement. Yeah. So, I mean, they, they developed out of modernism, more or less. Yeah, but, I mean, yeah. Masaccio going yeah. out from that yeah. rough, uh, I mean, yeah. that stiffness. Yeah. It's, yeah. And it's a, you know, it, it's a completely different area. I remember reading about Ibsen, young Ibsen, who was uh, <laughs> Henrik Ibsen, you know, Wild Duck, uh, uh, Doll's House and all these things. And he was staging some plays for a theater. Mm -hmm. And the novel thing was that the figures were not out on the stage. And, and then uh, you know, uh, talking out to the audience. Okay. They were turned and talked to each other. Oh, that was... And a... instead of, instead of a, a, a sort of a, a um, what do you call it, like a carpet <laughs> with paintings, paint, painted carpet, you know, with some furniture and some stuff. Yeah. Instead of having that on the back wall, they had furniture there. <laughs> and that was noted as something really, really, you know, <sighs> new and, and amazing. And then later when he, his, he gets a name, he meets this count outside of Munich. And he even, when they are staging, I think it's um, uh, some play by Schiller. Mm -hmm. He has the, the, the uh, yeah, there's an attack scene. Yeah. And he has horses on stage and a lot of soldiers. And the soldiers at the very, uh, that are very far away, they are small children with, with <laughs> attached beards. You know, and when they shoot cannons, it, the, it's uh, steam coming out. So yeah. it's all all that they could do to make it more alive. And of course, the irony is that today when they talk about progress, they're going back to what Ibsen left. Yeah, they <laughs> so are, it's yeah. the same thing as in with painting. God, yes, exactly. In painting, you see that they are going back to what Masaccio was trying to co go, come out from. Right. Back to this 
hard, rigid, stiff figures mm. that they don't relate to each other, they don't look to each other, they don't touch each other. Yeah. They're just standing there. Right. So. Okay, so let's uh, stick to some more radical material. Yeah. Um, I mean, you mentioned this thing about Mantegna. Uh, and I think this sort of goes under the idea of, of not being a naturalist. Because I, what I discovered quite quickly when we prepare for this conversation is that um, the things that you've been talking about when it comes to composition, what you need to, to be mindful of, of course, are things that Vasari are talking about, is the things that uh, were talked about in ancient Greek, Greece. Um, and it seems to be a red thread that, that uh, naturalism is sort of on a lower level. It is. Yeah. It is. Right. Because it will not work at the end on the composition that you are trying. You have to fix mm. things to translate things from nature into the canvas. Mm. All does that all the time. If you have to make the leg a little bit longer, or the arm a little bit short, I don't know. But mm. things should be fixed and right. put it in order in this, in this world. Yeah. Rules that are out there that you can take and then translate that into something that could look like it's possible. Mm. But uh, not naturalistic, that's not the goal at all. Well, it's the same thing with Rembrandt, the particle son, the, the man standing on the right there. Yeah, who doesn't have his whole thigh. I mean, if you look at his height, it's uh, but you don't notice it because it's so vibrant, it's so living. Right? It works. Mm. Uh, woman chasing uh, injured, uh, killing injured man. Yeah, it's completely unrealistic. Yeah, but it works. <laughs> <laughs> it's so fantastic. Yeah, and that's I think it's, it's a major point that that you if you end up with just symbolism, it doesn't work. It has to be realistically rendered. Yes, obviously. I, it but has to be rendered in a Greek way. I couldn't say that realistic, but yeah, I mean, I mean realistic, not in the style realism, but yeah. it has to be believable or believable. Uh, yeah, absolutely. Mm. Because yeah, it ends up in symbolism, with the figures are just floating there and uh, they don't uh, really have any ground. So there's right. some value in that, but and there are stand. there are some things, of course, that you don't necessarily. Well, it's the same thing with strokes. You don't see. You can't watch, look at them all and see what kind of strokes you should use if you don't <laughs> watch other painters. Uh, but there's one, you, the one was one thing about Montaigne that, that you didn't mention just, just now. Mm -hmm. How he would elevate the ah. figure. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because that, that was so weird. Because that's what I learned from Ad Nordrum. Yeah. So, so yeah. That, yeah, uh, that's something that Vasari says, that he suddenly Montaigne was aware of something like... Uh, making the figures that you could see that it could look like you are looking at them from below yeah but the for example the objects that a figure could be hang, um, having on his uh, holding in his hand you were not going to be able to see the top of the maybe the jar mm. that was mm. so all the figures should look like being seen from below and that's right. something that he was he vasari says that Montaigne subtly was aware of that right and everything become much better in his composition. Right. So uh, yeah, and that's what Oth has talked talk about before. It yeah, seeing the a, figure from underneath and the the, the landscape land from above. Right. So you could see uh, yeah. the buildings yeah. fading away in the landscape. Um, small yeah. figures involving to certain actions, but then you see the figures and they stand 
they're like uh, yeah yeah seeing I mean, from below uh, you, and you, you have the same stories from ancient greek greece right with um you know the standard supposedly being then the the head should be one eighth of the the length of the body mm-hmm. but then I, I think it was lysippos who changed it into one ninth so okay. the head become became much smaller in relation to the body so it seemed much taller and much more dignified and elevated uh-huh. yeah and that, of course i mean the, doing these things you really know have to know what you're doing because if not it just looks very strange it, it looks very strange but it works yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. but it, yeah yeah when you start reading about this and suddenly you find the story yeah. oh but Otto was talking about that four years ago when we were having some coffee at the morning, yeah. and then now Vasari is talking yeah. about that from Montaigne. So, yeah. well, yeah. it's a, it's another uh, example of how Odinism has influenced quite a lot of people. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and there you have the answer. Uh, yeah. But there's there's also the story about um, um, when we to on to talking about expressions and, and the emphasis he he places on that. Vasari, uh, mm-hmm. but but. Well, it's, it got, it got a, sort, of a, sort of a sliding transition there. Uh, there's this story about the Michelangelo yeah. and the fawn. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That, uh, that when he was doing this... Uh, uh, being young, a young boy or quite young in the house of the Medici. And, yeah. Learning from a master how to work in marble. Mm. And someone approached to him and said, I found that age could not keep all his teeth at that at that age so yeah. and then Michelangelo said okay bah, out yeah and he just removed the teeth and yeah yeah, yeah. right right <laughs> that's a funny story yeah <coughs> so talking about uh the expressions i mean one thing that is really uh occurring a lot of times when you read about the different uh, uh, painters, sculptors here, uh, is well. One thing is that it looks alive. It is mm-hmm. last nature, but he talks almost more about how the expressions are correctly rendered, or or, or the psychology is is, is correctly uh, yeah. displayed. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, he describes the uh, Michelangelo's work at the Sistine Chapel. And uh, how Vasari talks about the figures that are being thrown out from the from heaven into ah, hell, like and he says that you can see all these expressions of anger, fear, resentment, jealousy, and all these huge variations of um, expression. And you, if you go there, you, you will see many faces. They are just groups of people that are just thrown into hell. And all of them, they have a different expression of fear, anger. And, in, and then you go up there and Mary is there at the center of the composition with Christ at the, at the center up there. And he's ready to judge and to say who is really going up there and who is going down <laughs> there going down. <laughs> and Mary is just turning his her her eyes away yeah. from this situation because she cannot stand this horrible uh, thing that is going to happen there yeah. Christ is going to judge everyone so she just takes her uh, eyes away from from the situation and 
that I think uh, capacity to get so into the drama that you're really there. Oh, mm. I mean that's so mm. great and so rich. Yeah, and yeah, and that then that is what it's more remarkable for Vasari. And then he says, okay, the the, the structure of the Bob, this is very good. The design of this goes very well. Excellent. Nobody could uh, uh, surpass Michelangelo. He was very fond of him, yeah. you know. <laughs> and uh, but what he really regards and praises it's uh, this all these variations of facial expression and how the body reacts to being lifted up into right, heaven or yeah. being thrown down into hell. Right, right. It's fantastic. It's like you, you react differently if you're sitting in a chair than, than if you're sitting on a roller coaster. Yeah. Right. Uh, so <laughs> should. that should be more like a roller coaster. Yeesh. Like how would you, you wouldn't sit there, you know, on a roller coaster. Like, like that. Like no. <laughs> <laughs> so I, maybe that's, this is the one you were uh, thinking about here. Uh, okay. I, 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 I'm, I want to read this one quote. Okay. Uh, <clears throat> so, yeah, it, it's, it's the same part that you were, were talking about um, being cast in, down into hell for it is filled with all the passions known to human creatures and all expressed in the most marvelous manner for the proud the envious the avaricious the wanton and all the other such like sinners can be distinguished with ease by any man of fine perception because in figuring, the, figuring them Michelangelo observed every rule of nature in the expression in the attitudes and in every other natural circumstance look at that yeah and then it's, of course then you have the, the contrast then when he to talks about uh bandinelli bacio bandinelli uh-huh how he uh, uh he um i don't remember which figure or figures it is but the point is that he's criticizing them for having completely indifferent expressions right yeah as a, as a major flaw mm-hmm mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah that's what you many yeah many yeah. people nowadays are going into yeah so it's kind of going back into middle age or something. Right. Yeah. Right, right, right. Um, so when it comes to expression, hmm. I mean, that is, uh, I think, one of the most, really most important things to be aware of, the psychology of the figures. Right? Yeah. Um, we were talking about yeah, that, that, then it's not anymore about expressing yourself. It's nice. not about you, but it's about expressing the emotions of the characters involved into this into this uh, action or this scene. Right. So then it's it's never more about you. It's yeah. because it strikes me when we're talking about like like point by point, what we're talking about are the exact qualities, the exact values, the exact principles that are, are condemned, condemned in the value system of fine art originating in the 18th century yeah. that we are striving with today. Right? Oh, yeah, all the... Because, I mean, expression for Vasari is yeah. something completely different than for, for uh, Greenberg. Well, yeah, it's... it's a has been an appropriation of the whole thing and it's just turn it upside yeah yeah <laughs> <laughs> and then turn it upside down as many other things yeah yeah, yeah. Um, but the, it's about the expression of the characters involved into this particular situation yeah. it's not about 
Michelangelo expressing his uh, and that, that's why uh, Edward Munch is such a strange transitional figure yeah. because he had that you know what Eke Homo thing look at this human being what is it that goes on in his mind yeah yeah uh, like other rumors was talking about there's a mind there's, yeah, there's a brain behind the eye there's something going on there it, uh, but yeah. then he at the same time, he reads about the, the um, so-called expressionists, which is, you know, complete perversion, perverting of, of the term. Yeah. Uh, and then he feels old and he sort of caves into this thing. But um, mm. uh, anyways, uh, one other, th other thing that is really quite concrete is, the, is how Vasari praises darkness, black. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, there's what does a, it say about that? Well, there's a, a quite uh, a clear example about uh, Sebastiano del Piombo, mm. who painted a portrait of, I don't remember who, but uh, he made a portrait in which the man there was, uh, in the cloth that he was wearing was black. Mm. And background, black <laughs> but he said that uh, this man Sebastiano del Piombo used six different kinds of black <laughs> and so it was just so elegant and so refined way of oh my God. using six kinds of black that it was a wonderful thing so it was so beautiful but six blacks and it was just Black everywhere. Oh, it's black for connoisseurs. Oh yeah, and, and he said that this was like the one of the most excellent and masterpieces for this painter that was very skilled and very clever doing portraits. Right. But it was just full black, <laughs> and that was that's something that could be just forbidden here now. Right. right, right. Yeah, yeah, you talk about yeah black and we, we how much. 80% or 80, 85% 85% yeah, black that, that's the rule that's it's my personal objective rule yeah <laughs> um, but and, and then we have that example of I mean we cannot pass the tragedy mm -hmm. that occurred in the 16th chapel aha uh -huh. okay you know what I'm talking about yeah 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 I think you're talking about uh, removing the the last not just the last, but mainly the last layer uh, that Michelangelo did on that fresco. Yeah, that it's uh, the, yeah. Sorry, the bad. The background is that I guess it was in the eighties, mid eighties or so. Mm -hmm. They cleaned it or restored yeah. it or whatever. Yeah. Um, and uh, by some Japanese company that that uh, sponsored the whole thing, mm -hmm. and they. I show these proud images of how dark it was before and how they've taken away all the soot from the candlelights and these things. So, it's uh, rip, the, rip that story apart, will you? Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I mean, they also they took something that is quite important and definite on that uh, work, and I think it's the last layer which is painted, not in fresco but in seco. Yeah, explain that shortly. But. Um. Yeah. Well, uh, I don't. I'm. I'm never painted in fresco. Yeah, yeah, but but these are the last brushstrokes that make the whole thing work and bound mm. figures to each other, things here and there. I mean, if you take that away, you're taking away the last layer of the last layer of a great master that is binding all the figures into 
to pulling them together. Right. So if you take that away, hmm. you may take, you may, you are uh, maybe throwing the whole composition to the trash. Because it doesn't work anymore. There are simple notes that can be used here and there that make the whole thing work. And that, taking out that final layer, then removing all the patina that has been uh, stick there for quite a lot of uh, time, and then bringing all this light into it, it's not uh, it's not good at all. On my grandfather, when we were there, he was uh, he said this is so strange because. When I was here the last time, it looked like I was in a theater. And then I could see the, um, the light coming from the windows uh, from the Sistine Chapel. And you could see this whole thing that looked like coming to an opera, he said. And now it's just, everyone is just taking photos, flash everywhere. And there's a man saying, no, you can't take a photo here and there. But taking that away, they have just make the whole thing appear mm. and that's something strange but because it takes out this dramatic way of presenting the paintings mm. it's like for the cavemen in the in the you know, the old time when they were drawing all these animal forms in the in the caves mm. and they used these yeah, caves yeah. as a sort yeah. of a maybe ritualistic uh, place where he they could go yeah, and place. mythical place and you can they could come in with torches mm. fire and then they will see this seven meter bull cow that was there like and that power of uh, shocking i mean i could see that it's kind of the same way of doing it on a chapel mm. i mean you mm. If you take that darkness and that mythical and that story and that way to put it, mm. you're taking away all the power of the of the image and all the power of the myth in a way, and they have ruined it. Right. So that's why I mean, nobody I, gets this anymore. I remember if you see pictures, people can find that on the internet. Pictures of the the Judgment Day. Mm -hmm. If you find a good uh, uh, high resolution image. Mm. You can see, <clears throat> you can see on the bottom right, yeah, yeah. where you have Caron taking care of all this poor devil. All these poor, poor devils going into hell. The, yeah, yeah. Oh my God, these poor sinners. Um, <laughs> and you see that behind him, there's a red sunset, and mm. it's completely just removed. Oh. So unless you want to argue that the, the smoke from the candlelights right there was just red, but all the other places there was not red, yeah, then you have a problem of explaining what happened oh i'm going to check yeah. that because i have some photos of the 16th yeah. chapel there of the before it was restored yeah. damaged destroyed yeah. completely yeah. i'm going to check that but yeah. uh, i mean for, for me it's like the same thing that happened with with uh, uh taliban you know they put the, that buddhist sculpture on a trial and mm -hmm. condemned it for uh, being heathen and then they just blew it up you know no i mean because it, it, it's lost so much the Sixteen Chapel because of this cleaning, and you know. Okay, so if you if you want to uh, sort of rewind a little bit to this mm -hmm. idea of of not being a naturalist, uh, just to put it a bit in perspective, uh, if I mean like, like there are painters who are, you know, like the top level naturalists, so to speak. Okay. Like you have Velasquez. 
Okay. Yeah. Or you have Andrew Wyeth. Mm -hmm. I mean, like if there's a roof for naturalism or a ceiling, they're right up under it and they're sort of peeking into the next floor, right? Flirting yeah. with uh, what <laughs> De comes next. Most definitely. Yeah, most yeah, definitely, yeah. 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 Well, it's... Um, yeah, definitely it... You can... It, it feels like, yeah, they are reaching the top of this and flirting with this next level. What, yeah. what is there? Because when you, when you think, think about Andrew Wyeth, a crow flew by or a tenant farmer, that is emphatically not just a pure naturalist depiction of no. rural life in Maine. No, it's not. I don't think so. This is uh, the way shapes, uh, the, the way shadows are reflected and the way the light comes into and the... choosing. Choosing focus, right? It's perhaps Wyeth more than Velasquez. What do you think? What do you think? I think he's more into the into a more uh, dream world Why? than Vel yeah than yeah. Velasquez, much more. Hmm. Maybe you could see that on the um, I know how how you call that in English las hilanderas, the women that are uh, with a wheel. Yeah, oh, the, the, the the weavers. Okay. Like, Guess yeah. yeah okay. Then you have something yeah. on yeah on the background there. There's yeah. there's a scene there, a mythological yeah. scene that you, you, okay. You see these women working there. Okay. Yeah. If you see there on the background, yeah. there's something going on. But why it is by far much more go into the into the dream world that um, why it does yeah. Yeah, yeah than Velasquez that yeah. just stays there in a way. Yeah, I can't get Tenet Farmer out of my head. Yeah, and then if you <laughs> yeah, and then if you compare there. Um, El Greco, the best things with any other Spanish painters. Maybe Goya goes oh, yeah. closer. Yeah, closer to actually in the third of May, even though that's a specific time date. That's an interesting case. Yeah, because that could re very easily be. I mean, imagine yeah. Manet. No, no, no. Doing then that it, exact. Oh my then god. Then it will become naturalistic oh. and with uh, with all these insignias here and there that it will. Oh my god. Yeah, they could ruin the whole thing. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But uh, when I was uh, talking about El, El Greco, I think that he, with Goya, are the only ones who have been able to really depict movement and going into this uh, dream world, more mythical world, that no other Spanish painter has been able to do. And uh, it's like this painting of Laucun. Laucun. Greco. Yeah, El Greco. And one of his best, definitely. And... Uh, this is Washington. Yeah. So, Alt was telling us a story the other day. Like, this is... This scene is a nighttime scene. And it's... There's uh, a storm here, he said. What? There's a storm going on. And there's a thunder, like... Yeah. And then you see... <laughs> these figures going around and all these snakes and you see all these bodies like just stretching and, and then it goes away. And then the whole, the whole image just took so much. Suddenly it's gripping me and it's haunting me. And, but that was such a, a good description of the whole image. And it makes it like a dream. But you, you said something in that context uh, um, uh, about that horse. In yeah. the background there, which is of course the Trojan horse. I mean, that's the, the Trojan horse. Yeah, yeah. that yeah, yeah. Okay. that it looks so weird. If you <laughs> if you zoom in on it, 
If you see so it like don't that, paint a horse like this. No, that's the way you should not paint a horse. <laughs> so why, why the hell does it do it? How, how can that work? I don't know, but if you also go there to the rock and yeah. you just isolate that small rock yeah. down there, it doesn't work. I mean, yeah. you, if you hang that on your house and you say, yeah. well, look at this. Nobody really is going to say, oh, yeah, so it's almost not painted. It's no, but in the whole composition, it was extremely fine. Right. So there are many things that they look wrong, isolated, but in the context, they look right. extremely good and you could not change them. Hmm. Uh, but that freedom is something that is not, uh, you cannot just, yeah, take it. Right. Like, I'm going to start doing it like that. Doesn't work. Speaking of freedom, mm. you need to endarken us a bit. What does Vasari say about originality? Because that's sort of a major. I mean, that's as I see it. Uh, that is perhaps the major hindrance of creating what they refer to all the time as a new Renaissance. Mm -hmm. If you want to create a new Renaissance, originality has to. Go away. Yeah. Yeah. From, what the, from so what does Vasari say about originality? Or like what role does that play? Or I don't see I don't uh, see him or um, heard him about regarding or praising so much originality at all. Mm. What he emphasizes and what he gives a lot a lot of uh, place in the book is about painters and disciples and pupils from masters being able to go so similar to their mm. masters that the public and the people could not make a difference between if that was a painting of the master or the student. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, but then he, he says, well, and that the student here, he was able to become a more excellent or a, a higher degree of perfection or things right, like that, but right. no originality. There's nothing as that uh, name on, on that book. He doesn't talk never really about originality, hmm. but what is great is to imitate, to surpass, to compete. Yeah. Uh, th there's this uh, story about how um, Michelangelo made <clears throat> a copy of a Donatello. Mm -hmm. But it had more grace and some other cool quality. I don't remember. So there was originality was not a question at all, mm -hmm. like 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 a, like a thing. So and, and of course he says about uh, Raphael being influenced by uh, by um, Michelangelo. I guess it is in mm -hmm. that context where he talks where Vasari says praises Raphael for being an excellent imitator. Not an imitator of nature, but of another person's uh, painter's style. Yeah. Or, or craft. Yeah, yeah. Imitation was something that is fo was fundamental yeah. to uh, improve and to <laughs> make a renaissance. Yeah. <coughs> There's one story <coughs> here too, also about from, from, the, uh, from the Judgment Day. Mm. And I wanted to just look at this little, little sentence here about Charon. Dragging these devils, uh, the, the uh, strikes with his oars at the souls dragged down by the devils into the barg. And listen carefully now. After the likeness of the picture that the master's best beloved poet Dante described, mm -hmm. 
So you think about that. What Dante did was was to describe an image that he had seen, not specifically, but in his mind or whatever. Yeah. So he is copying an image, and and Michelangelo is copying the image that was described by Dante. So <laughs> that, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so that's like the essence of the whole Renaissance idea of, of quote unquote originality. Right? It's wonderful. It's it's about um, what do you call it? It's about intensity, yeah, not originality. Right? Yeah, 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 and mi mirroring mirroring their works. I mean, putting yeah. their works in front of each other yeah. and see what they yeah. can get from each other, yeah. and that they stimulate each other in a way that. Yeah. I mean, that that's one book. I don't know if you read it. I can really recommend for everyone to read hmm? Renaissance Rivals by Rana Goffin. And she lays out, she's quite good about uh, on not taking too much of the modern way of thinking into the mm -hmm. material. Uh, she relates a lot to, to what is being written at the time and uh, said at the time. And basically, competition is what set off the whole renaissance. Yeah. I mean, you have, you have um, <laughs> it's so funny, this, well, Cellini said so, so many funny things, Benvenuto Cellini. And he talks about that there's, there's this competition for a, a, um, a uh, uh, what is it called? Um, it's like a fountain. It's a fountain. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so he's considering participating on the condition that Michelangelo will uh, participate. Okay. Because from him and from no one else have I learned everything I know. <laughs> that's yeah. I mean that's when uh, the per, uh, the painter or the sculptor imitating you yeah. is competing with you and through competition you are of course imitating because you're not competing in completely different things no you're no. competing on the same level same field playing yeah. field right? and you are very aware of how yeah. strong your uh, competitor yeah. uh, is yeah. at yeah. this yeah. And then you see clearly your own weakness, and then you yeah. have to improve yeah. your. It's it's fantastic, and Dante also talks about that on the Divine Comedy when he talks directly to Virgil. And he says, "All kind of." I'm not going to quote it literally, but it's something like, uh, "All the honor that I have, or all all the works honor? that honor, and the yeah. works that I've been praised for." I own it to you because in a way I have I have oh, imitate yeah. everything and I have right. taken everything from you. Right. So that was something was highly prized, praised. And that's a that's a total irony too. I mean, in the modern the 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 mm. fine art way of thinking, yeah, it's basically sort of a shameless uh, appeal to complete egocentrism. It's it's yeah. me 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 totally. And their imitation with yeah. uh, admiration, yeah. trying to achieve that yeah. and recognize that someone is strong in this and you want because to Because I mean, they direction. had a clear idea of a standard because they had objective criteria, as, as I was, was mentioning. I mean, yeah. uh, Vasari says at some point, I think it's again the, the, the judgment day because of course that was a, was a major thing. Mm -hmm. um, and he talks about how would painter, paintings uh, painted and still unpainted mm -hmm. appear next to this one. Okay. And I mean, that's a huge, grand perspective. You're not just mm. thinking about, oh, okay, well, last generation, you know, they're out, I'm the best one now. You're talking about 
further into the future as well. And that's an amazing circular way of thinking. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's kind of a, continu a continuation of the works that the others made, in a way, mm. uh, continuing what has been done before. Um, mm. Then you're, you're, then you're thinking in a, in a circular way, in, in a way. It's not just yeah. this idea of progress that goes from this point A to point B, but that you are just taking what the, the Greeks have done, what the, the Renaissance painters have done, and then you're just continuing the whole yeah. thing. Yeah. Mm. And then, again, since this is our anniversary conversation, yeah. I can say to our viewers and listeners, go back to the conversation with Boris Koller, listen to his final words, which is just a beautiful way of phrasing, phrasing this, uh, this uh, principle. Um, okay, so um, <laughs> there's another side mm? to competing too. <laughs> and poor Bandinelli, he gets his... Um, his due in Vasari's book. His yeah. praise, but he also gets a lot of uh, criticism. Um, there's this one, I forget which figure, he was so concerned with making giants. And he is boasting about all of this, you know, how great it will be and uh, yeah, going all on about that. And then Vasari says, but then the work is shown and the work does not fit to the boast. Mm -hmm. And then he loses a lot of prestige. Okay. Because, you know, and, and, and then you have a situation where competition basically reveals uh, people who are trying to fool, fool you, right? Yeah. People who are frauds. Not that, I mean, Bonnet had strong qualities, blah, blah, but, you know, he fell for his own boast, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. But uh, then it's when you have a, 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 an objective meter yeah. where everyone can join and play by the same rules in a way as sport yeah, yeah. and uh, be able to have a, a, a rational field in which there are established rules in which you can compete with yeah. and and i don't know what's the problem with uh, with competition nowadays because everything you see around through every beautiful city in europe not some more than others but all the cathedrals all the um, beautiful museums, even uh, many buildings in each city, they were the product of competition. Right. A city wanted to have a more beautiful church than the city far kilometers there. Hmm. And we want to have a much more beautiful bridge here because so everyone could know that we are a fine city. Hmm. So we are going to ask the best ones to come here and make this and that. So competition made the whole thing as beautiful as you could see it today, but right. there remains of that. Right. So... And there's another thing too, because this, you know, having objective criteria, having competition, that is the safety net of the individual. Yeah. Because you cannot then uh, of course, there's always opportunism and nepotism in any age, but there's a chance for that person who does not have the university degree or does not have the money, does not have the family background, whatever, does not have the right uh, color, all of these things that are, keep messing things up, right? Yeah. Because you just look at the quality of the work and that's objective. Yeah, that's right? a merit of right. someone yeah. who is good at something. Right. 
And that's the, yeah, that's a field where you can really give a chance to a talented individual right. that could, through development and hard work and, and merit, he can stand by himself and become a great master and make a beautiful cathedral with beautiful paintings there. But that's the only way you can give a chance to someone. Hmm. In this environment in which we are living today, it's... Uh, no, very, very hard for a talent because they are not, they are not giving that chance of competing, taking mm -hmm. away competition. Mm -hmm. It's leaving so many talents out mm -hmm. from the conversation um, to being able to make a, a masterpiece, but we are doing it anyway. Yeah. Yeah. And we're trying to do something about it with the kitsch idea too, so. Oh, yeah, yeah. Okay, so I wanted to round this off with uh, what I really quickly discovered, and of course, um, people can accuse me of cherry picking, but <laughs> when when we've been talking about these things, there are certain objective rules across time mm -hmm. that we're talking about, right? Uh, yeah. And you you said to me at one point that that this comes more or less naturally. But also, of course, that, that reading <laughs> things like Vasari helps, right? Yeah, I think yeah, imitation comes naturally. Mm. There's not no such thing as a linear development. Mm. The cavemen were painting that. Some start asking if it, that was trying to imitate or was just something that just came out naturally. Putting those two things as something opposite. But naturally, humans tend to imitate all the time. Right. So that will come out again and again, as has, has been happening through, I don't know, centuries. So yeah, and I think that that's a beautiful thing with Vasari too. And if you read the, the first uh, book, he opens up by saying that man has always uh, created these images, yeah. even before the flood. And of course, in the Christian perspective, that's a grand... Oh, yeah perspective that's of time, right? <laughs> Before the flood. Yeah, yeah. And, and I think that's, um, that's an amazing thing. I mean, mm. one of the last things I, I heard about is that apparently they found remains of Homo sapiens back to, dating back to like 400,000 years. Mm -hmm. And thinking about what Vasari uh, wrote there, I mean, there's so much that has just been eradicated, thousands and thousands and hundreds of thousands of history. I mean, you can imagine, I, I just stuck in my head this idea, like who was the big painter 175,000 years ago? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Who then, was the author 250,000 years ago? Who was the playwright 320,000 years ago? Like, like what, what, what is it that we don't know? And you have huge catastrophes that have gone down mm. and then this has started again. Yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's, yeah, if you start thinking about that, I mean, I think the the great masters, in a way, they have always been here. There's not such such thing as a period of time. Mm. It's just that there are certain circumstances that can make that possible, and that you can see that sort of a dream world fits with the establishment, and then a renaissance come come yeah. up. But if you go from the renaissance until this time, if you dig a little bit, you will always find uh, a Renaissance master 
uh, here and there that comes from Sweden, that comes from uh, maybe Spain, that has been in between 1500 and the 20th century. Mm. But then they quit. They stop as monk on the, um, right. on the sick child. They do one, two, three good paintings, show that, yes, we are still here. And then, okay, I have to leave because I have to take care of my... It's like some trickster god. <laughs> it's strange, but there's always a painting here and there. You say, what? This painting was made when? In late 1800. By who? By a Swedish painter. And it looks like a Titian. Yeah. What is that? And then you see the other paintings that this guy, this man did. Totally bad. Yeah. Uh, uh, yeah, uh, totally modernistic and a sort of a bad copy of uh, Ensor. Mm. But there are always these kind of uh, signs that, yeah, it's not true. It's still right. here. And that's quite fine. Then there might be circumstances in which a third renaissance could happen. But now it's going on. I mean, we already started with it. So it's funny to, to start uh, talking about it. But... Uh, but they have been always there, and they will always be there. But circumstances change, things get a little bit messy. But it's there all the time, circular. It doesn't end. That's a great way to end. Sebastian Salvo, thank uh -huh. you for coming back to the Cave of Pelvis. Oh, it has been a pleasure. And thank you for watching. Remember, you can support our show at uh, patreon.com slash I'll see you next month.